Today's scripture reading is from uh, the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord says this, But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You may be seated. All right, good morning, church. Thanks for being here with us uh, this morning as we continue um, our catechism series. Uh, this Sunday, we're going to be continuing to look at God's creation uh, from Genesis um, while also uh, spending a little bit of time in Isaiah. I did, um, I wanted to uh, touch base on one announcement. I didn't put this in the announcements because I just wanted to give, it's a little different for us, and so I wanted to give a little bit of framework. Uh, we'll be talking about it more over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but as you know, the fifth Sunday of each month, we worship, whenever there is a fifth Sunday, uh, we choose to worship in ways that are biblical, but outside of the ordinary. So we don't do our normal gathering on fifth Sundays. We call those Shalom Sundays. And we find a way to serve worship together. And this month, we've been given a really neat opportunity that we've spent a lot of time in. Um, we are, uh, I'll tell you first, just real quickly, kind of about uh, something our community is getting ready to experience. As you know, if you follow the news at all, uh, we have, our country um, has recently gained a large number of Afghan refugees. Currently in military bases across the U.S., there are more than 50,000 Afghan refugees um, currently staying, awaiting a home. And uh, we have recently learned in Joplin, um, as well as Springfield and surrounding cities, that as over the next few months, as many as 50 um, Afghan uh, peoples will be coming to uh, Joplin in hopes of, of finding a home and a place to stay. Uh, a local organization called RAISE that has primarily been working with uh, refugees in Knoll is going to be coordinating this effort and has reached out to local churches for help. And so essentially what they're looking for is churches that would be prepared to say, uh, we are going to sponsor a family that is coming in, which essentially means we're going to be, a, they're, they're going to come here with nothing, probably separated from family, knowing nothing about the culture that we live in. And we're, they're essentially looking to churches to say, we're going to be a point person for them. We're going to be somebody that this family can come to when they don't know how to get their kids set up in school, when they don't know when somebody needs to learn how to drive a car, when somebody needs to learn at nine o'clock at night, where do I go when my child has an ear infection? They need a point of contact, somebody who's going to be there and, and help, and also who will help find housing and essentially just be 
the people that they can look to for a period of time when they come. And we uh, strongly want to participate in this effort. Uh, we uh, sing to and worship uh, a savior who was at one time a refugee, uh, fleeing, looking for um, a safe place to land. And um, God ordained that and has called us to care about that. Over the next two weeks, we're going to share more in a specific devotional time, kind of a theology for why we care about that. Uh, Luke is going to be sharing over the next two Sundays as we build up, and we'll be talking more. But I just wanted to give you a heads up, this is coming. So on that Shalom Sunday, we are going to gather here in the building, which we don't usually do on Shalom Sunday. We're going to be coming here to hear from Ray's and essentially go through a training as to how we can serve and love refugees that are coming into our community and then following that, we will have a meeting um, to, uh, in a, at a later week to talk about specifically what we feel we can commit to as a church. So be praying, uh, be here on Sundays as we share more about that in the weeks ahead. Today, uh, again, we're going to continue our series. Uh, last Sunday, we asked the question, how did God create us? And we discussed the implications of the fact that God created us male and female, uniquely and distinctly. And this morning, we want to consider three different questions. Number one, we're going to ask the question, what else did God create? This question is insignificant. It's incredibly significant for a man is called to steward the things that God has created. But perhaps there is a question that is even more important for you and I to consider, and it's where I want to spend most of our time today. I also want to ask the question, not only what did God create, but why did he create it? The, the question of what is foundational. But as a Christian, we must be able to explain why he created the what. There is no aspect of theology that is not ultimately dependent on a proper response to the question, why did God create me? And this leads to the third question we want to consider today. How do I align my life with God's purpose? If I understand why God created me, and not only why he created me, why he created everything, then I'm no longer drifting through life. For I know fully what it means to live a fulfilled life, a life in which my will conforms wholly with that of an almighty God. And so these are the things we want to look at this morning. And we're going to start um, at the very beginning in Genesis 1 with verse 31, where it says this. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Here at the end of Genesis 1, we see that all that God made was very good. In this text, we see that not only man was good, but God celebrated all that he had created. On the first day, God created light. He's the one by whose power we see. On the second day, he created essentially the atmosphere, and we see that he is the one by whom we are held, that the thing that keeps us from just drifting into the cosmos is the power of God and his creation itself. And on the third day, he created dry ground and vegetation. And we see that he's, he's not only the one who feeds us, but he's also the one that gives us tasks. He's the one that gives us that to do, that we get to work the ground. Whenever you put your hands in the dirt and you feel, man, there's just something healthy about that, that's because there is, because you were created. God gave, not only feeds you, but he allows you to take part in that process. On the fourth day, he created the sun and the moon and the stars. We're reminded that he's the one who warms us. He is the one that keeps us within his view. He keeps the galaxy at bay. On the fifth day, he created birds and sea creatures. 
And we're reminded that the reason that the world we live in is beautiful, as far as we know beauty, is because God is the one who created this beauty for his glory and our good. On the sixth day, where we end, where we arrive here in this verse, he created humans and land animals. We're reminded that he is the one by whom we have life. And because this is true, because God is the reason we have life, our life is meant fully and foremost above all else to conform to the will of the one who created us. Genesis 1.31 comes after day six. And God looks upon his work and he declares it good. But he is not done. There is still one more day of creation. God's response to his good work is that on day seven, he creates Sabbath rest. And we're reminded that he is the one in whom we rest. This was his purpose. God has given man the weighty task of stewarding, cultivating, and caring for all of creation. And each day we work the field in the unique specters that God has put us in. And we can be prone to believe that the seeds that we plant in the ground, what comes forth, what springs forth from our planting is somehow evidence of our unique power. And God knew we were prone to such things. And this is why on the seventh day, he created Sabbath. Eugene Peterson once wrote this about Sabbath. The Sabbath. If you don't take a Sabbath, something is wrong. You're doing too much. You're being too much in charge. You've got to quit one day a week and just watch what God is doing when you're not doing anything. The creation story reminds us that God is in control, which we are daily prone to forget. And one day a week, in his loving kindness, at the culmination of his creation, he creates Sabbath, a day on which we reorient our lives to acknowledge the truth of who he is and what he does. So God, he looks upon his creation as the one who spoke it into being, and he declares it good. And so we ask the question, what is good? What is it that makes it good? And in the simplest terms, what made creation good was that it glorified God. Everything he had made, all creation glorified God. The stars that shone in the sky testified to his magnificence. The animals and the care that humans were to show and were perfectly doing testified to his graciousness. And above all, the image bearer of God walking in fullness and joy and walking with him fully and completely dependent on him gave glory to the God who was worthy of such. And so we ask this question, what is this glory? What is glory? There are some words we know how to use, but they're hard to define. Like if, you've, if you're a parent or if you've ever worked around kids, sometimes a kid asks you what a word means and you're like, huh, like I, I definitely know what that word means, but it's super hard to explain what that word means. My daughter recently asked me what stocks were. And I was like, well, okay. I, I'm still not sure that I can say that exactly. <laughs> Glory is not merely describing the appearance of power or the, the power of an object. Like It's like we know that there is glory in watching a beautiful sunset. But that's, that's not solely what it is because glory is not, it's not just seen in objects. Because if we, when you watch the Olympics and you see somebody overcome and, and become out victorious against all odds, like, well, that's glory too. There's glory in that as well. Glory is something we simply recognize when we see it. And boy, do we long to see it all the time. Think about all that we do to experience glory. 
Where do we go on our vacations? We either go to the mountains or we go to the beach, and it's because the magnificence of the mountain range, like we're, we're just so captivated. We want to be in the presence of something beautiful God has created. And when we stand at the side of the ocean, it's like just something we cannot see the end of. It's bigger and deeper. It's broader than we can understand. And there's something so comforting and exhilarating at the same time about being in the presence of something we can't fully comprehend that's so much bigger than us. We travel to these beautiful places we watch sports with hopes of triumph. One of my favorite, that fall is my favorite time of year. And in no short order, they're in part, not only is it like the one time of year it's worth living in Missouri weather-wise, but I love football. From high school to the pros, I enjoy watching football. And on a high school level, my, I graduated from Cassville High School, so I, I enjoy rooting for Cassville. And I was born in Oklahoma, so my whole life I was born into an OU family. I enjoy rooting for the Sooners. And there's one thing that Cassville and Oklahoma have in common, and that is they both have one mortal enemy. That means more, it means more to defeat that enemy than any other. They each have that one team. And in the last 10 days, like it's been a great 10 days for me. I got to Cassville beat Monette, which is the only thing that matters. You can lose every other game. I'm really sad that Travis isn't in here because he graduated from Monette. But if you beat Monette, it's cool. Everything else is okay. And yesterday, in an Epic all-time game, Oklahoma beat Texas, despite being down significantly, they overcame, and if not, like, I know we're gonna get pummeled by an SEC team in the playoff, that's fine, we beat Texas, and that's all that matters. And watching a team, like watching humans overcome the odds, fight, and come out victorious, there's something, there's a sliver of glory that's seen in that, that's why we wanna be there. That's why we stay up way too late to watch that game, because we want to experience, we want to taste, we want to feel a little bit of that glory that ensues. We don't want to miss it. These moments connect with something deep inside of us. We desire to see and experience glory because it connects us to that which we were ultimately created for. The glory of God is both his beauty and his perfection. It's his excellence and his majesty. It is his infinite purity and also his infinite power. John Piper, when defining the glory of God, he says, it refers to his infinite and overflowing fullness of all that is good. The term might focus on his different attributes from time to time, like his power and wisdom and mercy and justice, because each one is indeed awesome and beautiful in its magnitude and quality. But in general, God's glory is the perfect harmony of all his attributes into one infinitely beautiful and personal being. God's good creation put on display the glory of God, making much of him. And that's what makes it good until it was no longer good. Understanding God's purpose for creation helps us to understand the absolute scandal of Genesis 3, of the fall. Out of all creation, God loves the image bearer first and foremost, and yet it is the image bearer that attempts to take for themselves the glory that belongs to God and God alone. That's what happened there at the tree. Creation attempts to take the place of the creator and all is lost. And despite the devastation that occurred amongst all creation after the fall, humans do not and have not ever stopped in their attempts to attain their own glory. In Genesis 11, 
not too long after the fall, we arrive at the Tower of Babel. And essentially, the people have come together and they've decided to build what, what, was, what happened wrong in their minds at the, in the garden was that they didn't have the technology they needed. Now they can really go get that fruit from the tree. They're going to build the tower so that they can arrive in the heavens and they will no longer need God. And in verse 4, people reveal their heart when it says, they say, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. At this point, humanity seems to be without hope. But in an act of absolute mercy, God intervenes and he scatters them in order to protect them from themselves. And because of God's great love, which is certainly an aspect of his glory, he showed his people grace as he prepared to rescue them. And just one chapter later, in Genesis 12, in verse 1, God tells Abram this, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice the distinction between 11 and 12. At the Tower of Babel, we're going to make a great name for ourselves so that we can attain glory. One chapter later, God promises Abram, I will bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice the distinction between these two desires to have a name. This desire to, we, we have rooted deep inside of us in our flesh a desire to make our own name great. And we can do that not only in worldly ways, but we can do that with what appears to be religion. When I desire to use religion so that I can have good works and God will owe me something by my power, I am the older brother and I am left outside the dinner table. I am using God's name in order to try to attain my own name, not solely through the blood of Christ. That's why we repeat that mantra over and over again when we sing that song. Don't, don't let me, no works, not by my works, but by your works. And God says, I will make your name great. Not on the basis anything of Abram had done, but because God in his loving kindness chose to love Abram and had a plan to redeem a people. In Genesis 12, something amazing happens. God reveals his plan to restore the image bearers that he loves. He will make them worthy. He will make his beloved creation once that was once good. He will make them good again, but not by their power, not through our works, for we are still glory hounds. But he has made us good on the basis of his loving kindness revealed in Christ Jesus. And in that, it's his glory, even and perhaps especially our brokenness glorifies God because of such things. It glorifies the Redeemer, the one who is able to save. That in God saving us, he is glorified all the more even as we acknowledge our weakness. So it's not our strength, our fake strength that glorifies God. It's our acknowledgement of the promise of our dependency on the promise that he made to Abram. So that even in our brokenness and our lowliness, God is glorified all the more. And this is why Jesus drifted towards those who were broken and aware of it and acknowledged it for the glory of God. Man is prone to his own way, but in grace, the Lord brings his children back every single time, and he receives all the glory forever and ever, for he is the one to which glory properly belongs. This morning, I want to look at 
to put this verse in Genesis in context. I want to spend some time in Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7, which uh, Jeff and, and Beth Newman both read from. I want to start by reading verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Isaiah 43 is set in the context of fear. The people of God are afraid, and rightly so. Not only do they fear their enemies in the world, but Isaiah 42 is an intense rebuke from the Lord. They are guilty of erroneous sin as glory hounds. Yet God is reminding them here in Isaiah 43 of who they are. God's word in 43 is meant to dissuade their fears. God reminds them, even just here in this first verse, of some epic truths. It says, he who created you. God is the one from which you came. He brought you into existence. You were not a fluke. God has a plan for you. A plan for your good and his glory. And it's for that reason he formed you, verse 1 tells us. Not only did he create you individually as a person, not only did he form you in your mother's womb, but he made you a people collectively. You are not just an individual. You have been made part of a people. Like, do you know that? Like, you're not just a, a person on your own floating around. You've been made part of a people through the blood of Jesus. God's people. That's why, you know, like, if you ever wonder, like, that's why we value church membership at Rooted Church. Because we want to distinctly, in every way, acknowledge and beat in the truth that you are not on your own. You've been made a part of a people. We are a people within God's people. We're not just floating around aimlessly. We don't come and go. No, we are committed to one another on the basis of Christ. We have been made a people. And he tells them, he's created you, formed you. So fear not, for I have redeemed you. Genesis 3 was the worst thing that could ever happen to you. And it did. And God showed up. And he rescued you. And if he rescued you from the glory heist of Genesis 3, and all the moments that you would try and fail over and over again, then he will rescue you in all things. Yes, pain and loss will meet you. But he says, I have called you by name. You are mine. Where there was once void and darkness, God spoke life into being. He spoke you into being, Christian. And not only did he speak you into being, but he called you by name. You were lost, and he found you individually. God delights in you individually. He called you by name. Your salvation is evidence that God was not just broadly casting a net for all people, but he came to you, spoke your name, and rescued you out of a personal love he has for you as his beloved. And in verses 2 and 3, he assures them, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, 
the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. This is not some far off promise God is giving his people. God alludes to specifics. When he made a promise to Abraham, he committed to keeping that promise, for that's who he is. The sea did not drown God's people. It engulfed their enemies instead. The fire did not burn the prophets of the Lord, but instead it testified to his power amongst a nation. Notice, Christian, this promise is not that you will not go into deep waters. In fact, it's an assurance that you will. He says, when this happens, when you enter in. But it is an assurance that you will not drown because of Jesus. You will walk through fire. It tells you as much but you will not be burned. Difficult days will come and hardships will threaten to overtake you. Some days you will feel that you are in a hole that you cannot escape from. But on those days, the promise of the Lord remains steadfast and true. Who you are is infinitely adored and beloved because of who he is and who he is does not change. And he declares who he is in this verse, when he says, I am the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. In verse 4, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. What is God's motivation for making such an elaborate promise? It's because you're precious to Him because you're precious in his eyes. It's because, Christian, the Lord adores you. And these are not merely words. He has chosen to honor you, holding you in high regard as sons and daughters. You were no good. You were accursed. Yet God has taken away your name of dishonor, and he has replaced it with a name of honor, a righteous name. And you are now a noble in the courts of God because of his infinite love for you. And he declares as much. He just says as plain as can be, I love you. I give Egypt as your ransom because I love you. And here, we see a distinction between God's broad love for his creation and his saving love for those whom he has made into a people. God loves all people. For God so loved the world. This is not a question. God loves all people, values, we are valued as image bearers of the king. All people, as we talked about last week, have value as image bearers of God. But he has called his people by name. God loves all people, but there is a saving love. There's a distinction between a love that I have for all children and a love that I have for my children. My children, I don't just love them and offer them, I don't just care for them. No, I've given them my name. I've given them my name. All that I have is theirs. This is a, there is a broad love, and then there is a saving love. We are children of the promise, not children of flesh. We are, the God's chosen people are products of Abraham's seed. We were born and saved according to the promise of God to Abraham. When God stood and promised Abraham that his would, there would be more than stars in the sky. One of those stars he was talking about was you, Christian. 
Like, let that sink in for a moment. If you belong to Jesus, then when God stood there so long ago and made that promise, he was speaking about you, that you were part of the promise of Abraham, not just you in general. It wasn't like, God, I hope that they're a part of this. No, God knew you were a part of this and assured that you would be such. Isaac was born when his parents were old by the power of God not as a result of man's will. It wasn't even specifically man's will. Sarah laughed about such things. But according to God's good purpose that he might attain you, Isaac was born. For his glory and your salvation, the Lord ordained your rescue. He had you in mind when he spoke the world into existence. And there are no links that he will not go to in order to bring you home. And five and six, fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. To these poor trembling hearts that are afraid, God once again cries out, fear not. God's undivided attention is divinely bent on your restoration. He will have his children. All of his divine attributes are engaged fully to that end. That that being bringing his children home to safety. That's our job as believers. It's not to save people. That's outside of our job description. We can't do that. Okay, like God is not dependent on you or I. He will have his. But it's to declare the excellencies of he who has rescued us. That God might be so gracious as to use our testimony to call his child to himself by their name. Make no mistake. You can sleep soundly each night knowing that God will have his own but you wake up motivated in the morning because he chooses to use you and to have you walk by him and sit with him at his workbench of grace as he does that, which only he can do. And there is no honor, there is no thing in the world you can do in which you will find more satisfaction than being with God as he does that which he created you for. As we close this morning, I want to look at this last verse. Verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God will call his own. And before Jesus ascended into heaven, he instructed us as to how God has chosen to do this in Matthew 28, verses 19. Verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptize them in the name of the one in whose name they are saved. Salvation is a gift of the Lord, which he has chosen to make known through his redeemed people, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. God did not create, create you so that he could become more glorious. He could not be more glorious. No, he made you to display the glory of the Lord. 
that it may be seen and praised. And there is nothing greater in the cosmos than the glory of God. You were created for one ultimate purpose above all others, and that being to display the glory of God, that his glory might be known and praised. Because unlike you and me, we are not worthy of the glory we seek to attain. But it is right and just and good that the one who is worthy should have such glory. And things are put in right order when he does. Christian, if you find yourself wrestling with life's meaning, wondering what you're here for, maybe on the dark days wondering if your life even matters, you do not need a self-help book. You do not need just to reorient these things. I mean, perhaps there are helpful things that would help you to be healthier. But ultimately, what you are looking for is the answer to this question. Is your life aligned fully with the will of God? Meaning, is everything in your life centered around the ultimate purpose of displaying the glory of God? If it is not, then it's time for a drastic realignment. For Isaiah makes clear that all you have been given is intended for that purpose. In Isaiah 43 verses 20 and 21, God says, I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people, the people who I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. That God gives his good and precious gifts to those he loves that they may, be, they may lead them to a place of praise. Perhaps that very thing you feel you need, if I just had this, I would be happy. If I just had this much money, I would be fulfilled. Perhaps if you had that, it would lead you to everything but praise. Because sometimes God says, I, I fed them and they were satisfied and they left me. That's, the, that, that's what often happens. Sometimes the most gracious thing God can do is withhold that which he knows would not lead you to praise, but would lead you to your own glory. Because every good and precious gift is intended that they might declare my praise. In Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, it gets a little more pointed. For my namesake, I defer my anger for the sake of my praise. I restrain it for you, that I might not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God will not allow his glory to dwell forever with anyone other than himself. That is the reason which one day, Every name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. On that day, God will be done allowing others to falsely hold on to a glory that is his and his alone. He will no longer, his name will no longer be profaned. He will not share his glory forever, ever. The Lord will not give his glory to another. Redemption changes the heart of a man in a way that can be hard to define. Much like a word that's hard to explain, it can be hard to explain exactly what happens in the heart of one who has been rescued. In fact, at first, you, if you, when you know somebody who has received salvation, you may not even notice exactly what changed. In fact, some realize some point later that they have been saved, but they struggle to identify, I don't know exactly when it happened. 
That's because it can appear subtle at first, but what redemption does is that it changes the heart of a man and a woman in such a way that can be subtle, but its implications are eternal. When God calls you by his name, he reorients your heart towards his glory and away from your own. Salvation is the process of being given sight. And this is why Jesus gives sight on multiple occasion, because of the occasions, because it reflects this deep truth. Apart from God, you are right there in Genesis 11 trying to build the Tower to Babel. This is the goal of the world. It's the work to which the child of man gives his life. However, as he promised, God reorients the children of Abraham to see the one whom is worthy of glory forever and ever. And you slowly and surely grow in your awareness of the one who is worthy of all glory. And by the power of the Spirit, you give him more and more of that with each passing day. I want to close. I, only, I could say that three times. It's only a second. I'm done. But I want to close with this uh, quote from Charles Spurgeon on this text. God stays his people's heart by his own promises. In proportion to their faith, those promises must lift them up. If you do not believe the promise, you shall not be established by it. But if with childlike confidence you accept every word of God as true, then this word shall be to you the joy of your heart and the delight of your spirit, and you shall be a stranger to fear. The Lord proceeds after giving those promises to set before them what he himself is and what he has done for them and what they are to him. Lord, I ask you um, this morning that we might know well those three things. Lord, help our, our hearts to just acknowledge and to know who you are. Lord, often uh, who you are can, um, can feel distant. Uh, we can um, lose sight of, uh, of just your, your personal presence with us. Lord, on those days, would you remind us of who you are? Lord, would you remind us of who you are and what you have done? You are magnificent, Lord. You are awesome. You are perfect and pure. You are all things that we cannot be. You are the polar opposite of that which the flesh is. You are perfect, awesome, majestic. God, you are perfectly loving. You have you fully justified in remaining distant from us, but you have not remained distant. You have shown your love to us and that you have drawn near and made a way for us through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you. Lord, I pray that the re that reality, that the reality of who you are and what you would done, have done would help us to understand who we are. Lord, we are prone to forget who we are. You've brought us in. You've made us, uh, you've made us royalty. You've made us heirs to the throne of grace. And yet, Lord, we are so prone to get riled up by the crowds building the tower. It's in those moments, Lord, that our, our faith is not as strong as we would wish it to be. Lord, thank you that you don't leave us in those moments, that you assure us that we do not have to fear when we have uh, struggled, when we have fell short, because you will not leave us. 
Lord, we, uh, we are prone to find ourselves in water in which we cannot swim. We are prone to be drawn towards the fire that we walk through. But Lord, I thank you that you have promised us that we will not drown, that we will not be burned, and that one day we will receive that which you promised Abram. Lord, thank you for this assurance. Lord, help us. Holy Spirit, help us to believe in the promise and, uh, and, and, and make our lives different as a result that those who are yours in this city who don't know it yet might see the glory of you through us. I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.